Let's turn in God's word to the book of Mark, chapter 13. And as you're turning there, let me ask you, have you ever been caught unprepared? I'm guessing you have. Have you ever been caught? I'm not unprepared now. That's not where I'm going with this. Relax. Have you ever been caught unprepared? I'm guessing you have. Uh, At times, being caught unprepared is excusable. At times. At times, being caught unprepared is inexcusable. Let me give you an example of each. Excusable. You enroll in a college course. You show up for the first class. The professor hands out, distributes the the syllabus. And you read it diligently, carefully. And you read, especially, the course assignments. There is no mention of an exam. No mention of an exam. Halfway through the semester, you show up for class. And the professor hands out an exam. You are caught unprepared. But it is excusable why you had no idea it was coming. There was no mention of an exam at the outset of the course. The professor never mentioned it. You aren't ready for it, but it really isn't your fault because you didn't know any better. Now move over here. Inexcusable. Same example. Uh, You enroll for a college course. You show up the first class. The professor hands out The syllabus, you read it, and as you make your way through the course assignments, you notice this one dreadful line. At some point during this course, there will be a surprise exam. There it is, black and white. You've read it. You know it. Midway through the semester, you show up for class, and to your horror and dismay, the man actually hands out a surprise exam. You didn't think it was going to be that day. You are caught unprepared. Guess what? It is inexcusable. You are culpable. Why? You knew it was coming. He didn't tell you when it was coming, but he told you it was most certainly coming. It was your responsibility to be ready. It was your responsibility to not be caught unprepared. Now, when we turn to Mark chapter 13, primarily verses 32 through 37, Now, the Lord Jesus uh, issues a warning, a warning against being caught unprepared, being caught unprepared when he returns. And his point is this, simply this, being caught unprepared at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is inexcusable. Why? He has declared he's coming back. He has announced it, he has proclaimed it, he has informed us, he has not said when he's coming back, but he has declared that he is coming back. And his point, his central point in verses 32 through 37 of Mark 13 is simply this, you dare not be caught unprepared. You know he's coming, and to not be ready, to be caught unprepared is culpable. It is Inexcusable. Now, these verses, again, namely verses 32 through 37, complete a discourse which actually begins in verse 1. That fact should grab our attention alone. This is a long chapter, 37 verses. It is the longest discourse in the entire book. Mark, as a matter of fact, as you read the book of Mark, Mark doesn't give very much attention to what Jesus actually says. Yes, he records it as he engages in conversations and debates and dialogues with different people, but Mark certainly isn't like Matthew. Matthew records long sermons, such as the Sermon on the Mount. Mark doesn't do that. Mark is a man of action, and Mark is portraying Jesus as a man of action, and Mark has has one goal in view. It's to get us to the cross. And so he doesn't record big bulks, big sections of the teaching of the Lord Jesus, except In this case, aha, that's an aha moment, folks. That should grab our attention. Uh, As far as Mark is concerned, this is of great magnitude. This is of great significance. This discourse, which begins in the first verse of chapter 13 and concludes in the 37th verse at the end of the same chapter. Now, last week, we made our way through the first 31 verses. 
And we did so by paying careful attention to road markers. I don't know if that was helpful. I hope it was. I called them road markers. So that as we made our way through, through this long discourse, this sermon in effect, uh, we, we'd be able to keep in view where we've been and where we're going. So the first road marker, let me just be very brief by way of review, is the curse. Verses 1 and 2. Jesus and his disciples, they walk out of the temple. The disciples, they're impressed by the temple, its size, its magnitudes. Look at these big stones. And Jesus, essentially what he says, boys, you're amazed by these stones. Uh, Here's what's going to happen. Not one of these stones is going to be left on top of the other. What is he prophesying? He is prophesying the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. He is pronouncing, he is proclaiming the curse. That was the first road mark. The second road marker is the question. Verses 3 and 4, they've left the city, they've climbed up the Mount of Olives, they have a wonderful view of the temple, and four of the disciples come to the Lord Jesus and they want specifics. When exactly is this going to happen? What will be the signs? And then the third road marker, beginning in verse 5, is the answer. It really goes all the way through to the end of verse 27, but I've I've split it in two, only taken as far as verse 23, because in verse 24, Jesus, he shifts shifts gears a little bit. So think for now in terms of the answer as beginning in verse 25 through to verse 23. And Jesus gives them a number of signs. He points, first of all, to false messiahs, verse 5 and 6. He mentions military conflicts, verses 7 and 8. He speaks of natural disasters, still in verse 8. And then violent, big section on violent persecutions. Verse 9 all the way through to verse 13. And then the sign of signs, the abomination of desolation, beginning in verse 14. He takes that right out of the book of Daniel. Four times it's mentioned in the book of Daniel. Historically, it refers to a man named Antiochus who desecrated the temple in 167 B.C., And Jesus' point is this. I know that image is still alive very much in your minds. That is part of your history. You live it and you breathe it. Well, there is an Antiochus-like desecration coming, an abomination of desolation. And so he gives them all of these signs. And then he caps it all off in verse 23. This is his answer, still the third road marker. But be on guard. So be watchful. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So there's the answer to my question. In in your question, verse 24 through 27, we have the fourth road marker. It's the prophecy. Really still part of his answer, but the emphasis shifts. Look at what he says at the outset of verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation. And so he appears to be making a distinction. He appears to be differentiating between two events. Firstly, those days, the destruction of the temple, and secondly, something else that's going to happen. And so last week I mentioned the fact that what we have in these verses, what we must keep in mind when we, when we read verses like this and we get back into the Old Testament and when we get into the book of Revelation, all of those texts of Scripture with all of that symbolism and imagery, what we call apocalyptic language, we must always keep in mind the fact that there is a prophetic perspective. And in the prophetic perspective, there is always an immediate future and a distant future. And the the immediate future points to the distant future. And so it's like driving toward two mountains, one mountain right behind the other. You're still a couple hundred miles away, but you can see them as they pierce the, the, the sky, the blue sky above. And from that vantage point, as you drive toward them a couple hundred miles away, it looks like the second mountain is almost right on top of the first. It looks like they're really close. But when you finally reach them and you begin to drive around the first mountain, you realize to your horror there are actually hundreds of miles between the two. That's the prophetic perspective. That as we read Scripture, and especially Scripture in which there is apocalyptic language, there is almost always an immediate future which points to a distant future. And so in this context, the immediate future is the destruction of Jerusalem. But after, in those days, 
after that tribulation. You see, there's something right behind. The next major event in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. And what is it? It is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, the consummation of all things. And so you have this prophecy employing apocalyptic language of of, of these great tumult in terms of the, the sun and the moon and the stars and the powers in the heavens shaking. And then verse 26, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then the gathering of God's elect from the four winds, verse 27, and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. And then the fifth road marker, the exhortation, beginning in verse 28, concluding in verse 31, is simply this. The Lord Jesus reminds his disciples, rather, he exhorts his disciples to pay attention to the sign. And he uses a physical image, metaphor, fig tree. Come spring, uh, the shoots become tender and the leaves appear. And when that happens, my disciples, you know what? You know summer is just around the corner. You know summer is coming. So from a month from now, the shoots will appear around here. The flowers will begin to bloom. The buds will appear on the trees. And when that happens, we know what is coming. Summer is just around the corner. And so there is this exhortation to be on guard. I have told you all these things before they happen. I have told you of the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. You've asked me how you'll know when it's going to happen. I have given you the signs, and you must flee when it happens. And historically, we know it's true. That as the Roman legions siege, lay siege to the city of Jerusalem from 66 A.D. to 70 A.D., there were very, very few Christians killed in that slaughter. Why? They had all left. They had all departed from the city of Jerusalem. And now we come to our text, a sixth road marker, beginning in verse 32 through to verse 37, and we're going to call it the warning. Follow along as I read these verses. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And so here we have now the sixth road marker, concluding this discourse, and we're entitling it, The warning. It consists of two parts. The warning has two parts. First of all, there's a command. It's pretty explicit in verse 32 and verse 33. And then there is a comparison, beginning in verse 34, taking us all the way through to the end. And so the command, verse 32 and verse 33, they must be on guard, they must keep awake. Why? The second part of verse 33, you do not know when the time will come. You do not know when the time will come. Now this begs the question, of what is the Lord Jesus speaking in this context? Is he still speaking of the temple, the destruction of the temple, or is he now speaking actually of his second coming? I think the answer resides in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Pay careful attention. He is no longer speaking of something they know, but that they do not know. They know when the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. He's just given them all the signs. He is now speaking of something they do not know. Now, read on further. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son himself. He's no longer speaking of something he knows but something he does not know. He has been very explicit in his description of the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and he has given these five signs culminating the abomination of desolation. He knows when it's going to happen. They now know when it's going to happen. He's now speaking of something they do not know and that he himself does not even know. 
Now check that. We need to pause for a moment. What do you mean he doesn't know? He's the son of God Almighty. He's omniscient. Oh, friend, check your Christology. Be very careful here. The doctrine of Christ. We are confessional. And we confess the early creeds, ecumenical creeds of the church. When you go back to the third and fourth centuries, all of that, those creeds which ooze wonderful Christology, the doctrine of the Lord Jesus. Be very clear in terms of what we mean when it comes to who the Lord Jesus is. The creeds affirm, because Scripture affirms it, that Jesus is fully God. Amen. Jesus is fully man. Amen. In one person. Now understand this. The two natures remain distinct in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not fused. In other words, the properties of deity are not transferred to his humanity, nor are the properties, what is essential to humanity, transferred to his deity. In other words, that is to say, God, Jesus as God, the deity was never hungry. His divine nature was never thirsty. His divine nature never had a night's sleep. His divine nature did not die upon Calvary's cross. What is true of his humanity Those properties are not transferred to his divine nature. Equally true, and this is where many of us get stumped and we trip. The properties, what is essential to his divinity, his deity, is not transferred to his humanity. His humanity is not omnipresent. His humanity is not omnipotent. His humanity is not omniscient. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-present. He is not all-knowing. In his humanity. Now here's the wonder of the incarnation. And this is what is made so abundantly clear at the Mount of Transfiguration. When his humanity, the veil of his humanity is removed and we behold the eternal splendor of his deity. His deity is veiled. And as Jesus lives on earth, he lives as a man. And he lives, this is so important, Christian, and this should be so encouraging for us, he lives as a a man in submission to his Father in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. That is why at the Jordan River, at the outset of his ministry, as he emerged from the river, he is baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descends, anointing him for his ministry. Every miracle he performs, he does so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every insight he has, It is his by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Every manifestation of authority and omnipotence, it is by virtue of the Holy Spirit working through his humanity. This is important. Oh, I don't have time for all this, but this is important, Christian, because oftentimes Christ is set up as our example. We're to follow him. We're to emulate him. And we often think, well, who can do that? He's God. He is man. He lived as a man, a human just like you, just like me, without the fallen human nature. A man who lived in perfect submission to his Father and in complete dependence upon the Spirit of God. That's why as Christians, it is such an encouragement and pivotal to our faith, this great reality, this great truth, that that man is now ascended to the throne of God at the right hand of God from which he reigns. And we have a high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses. He knows everything you've ever been through. Everything. And everything you will ever go through. Why? Because he's been through it all himself as a man. And as a man living in complete dependence upon the Spirit of God. That's why he passes whole nights in prayer. Why does he pray? He's living in dependence upon the Spirit of God. In submission, perfect submission to the will of God. That as a man he might be our substitute, our kinsman redeemer at Calvary's cross. Bearing the penalty for our sin. And it is his deity then which lends what? infinite value to that sacrifice. Are you getting that? This is wonderful, beautiful Christology. And so when you come to a text like this, some of the skeptics will say, well, see, Jesus didn't think he was God. Jesus knew perfectly well who he was and is. Fully God, fully man in one person. But the natures remain distinct. His deity is veiled. And he lives as a man, 
our perfect substitute, a man, a human being. He lives as a human being, fulfilling the law in dependence, complete dependence upon the Spirit of God. And so that hour, that time of his return in his humanity, he now says what? That he himself doesn't even know. He is no longer in these verses speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. He clearly has something else in view. He has reverted to what he has introduced in verses 24 through 27, his second coming. And his point is simply this. Okay, when it comes to the destruction of Jerusalem, you know the signs. You know when that's going to happen. But my return, the consummation of all things, you do not know when that's going to happen. And therefore, you must be prepared. You know it's going to happen, but you have no idea when it's going to happen. You have this absolute certainty that I'm coming back, and yet absolute uncertainty as to when I am coming back. Therefore, the command is what? Stay awake. And he reinforces it with a comparison beginning in verse 34. Look at the first three words. It is like. I'm making a comparison. And he uses a physical metaphor. And what is the metaphor in verses 34 and 35? He speaks of a man, a master, who owns a house. And this man is going off on a trip, maybe a business trip, a journey of some sort. And so when he leaves, he, he, he leaves his, when he departs, he leaves his servants, and he commissions them. He reminds each of them of the responsibility of their work and uh, charges them to be faithful in his absence. His, 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 his doorman, uh, his guard, if you like, he... he, he He exhorts him to be watchful during his absence. And the point is what? His servants know he has left. They know he's coming back. But they don't know when he's coming back. Therefore, they must remain diligent. They must be on guard. They must stay awake. They must be faithful. And they must be watchful. And then Jesus just brings it all to a a head in verse 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That is the warning. Now, at this juncture behind me, you're going to see a slide. Melissa, that's your cue in case you didn't catch it. You're going to see a slide come up. There it is. You have seen this before. I think it was maybe five or six months ago I inserted it in the sermon notes. It's a, it's a diagram which goes back decades. I first encountered it in back in my seminary days. And there are plenty of variations that have been drawn up of this diagram over, over the years, over the decades. And basically, what this diagram gives us is a bird's eye view of the unfolding of God's plan of redemption, plan of salvation. And what you need to notice is that the unfolding of God's plan of redemption hinges upon two ages. And Scripture speaks of these ages. There is the present age, and there is the age to come. The present age over here begins when? At creation. It ends when? Not at Christ's first coming. It ends at Christ's second coming. That is the old creation. That is the creation under the curse. That is the old humanity. The present age. But you see, there is a second age. It is the age to come. When does it begin? Not at Christ's second coming. It began at his first coming. And it continues into eternity. Are you seeing this? That means that the two ages overlap. They overlap between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. That the old creation, which began at creation, Genesis 1.1, and is now under a curse, fallen, it continues until the second coming of the Lord Jesus. The new creation, inaugurated at Christ's first advent, by which he has instituted a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, it is awaiting his second coming for its consummation, and it will continue into eternity. These two ages overlap. And in the Bible, this period of overlap is identified as the last days. The last days began with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the last days continue until the second coming 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last days is, refers to this period of time in which the people of God find themselves when they are actually part of two creations, two ages. They live, we live, with the tension of being in two ages. We are still under that old age, which Scripture refers to as the present age, the old creation, and we still live with the effects of the fall and sin all around us and the effects of the curse. But now in Christ, we are part of a new creation. But we are awaiting its consummation at his second coming. And right now, we live this entire period of the church, we live with this tension of being in two ages. It will end at the consummation, the present age. The consummation, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, a singular event when he will raise the dead. The dead will rise, the resurrection of the dead. He will judge all people. He will consummate the new heavens and the new earth, a new universe. And in him all things will be consummated. That is what we are waiting for. And here's the thing. Here's Christ's point in these verses. We have no idea when that's going to happen. We haven't the foggiest idea. We do not know. By his own confession to his disciples here in verse 32, he does not know. It is going to happen. He has promised it will happen. He has declared he is coming back. But he has not told us when he is coming back. Therefore, we must stay awake. To stay awake is to be faithful. And to stay awake is to be watchful. Now, primarily the Lord Jesus has believers, his disciples in view, but let me submit to you, there is a very pertinent application here for unbelievers. If you fall into that category right now, you are an unbeliever. Uh, You must grasp this. You need to understand this. That things will not continue as they have been. That uh, life does not continue for an indeterminate period of time. But that there is an end. There is a coming resurrection. There is a coming judgment. And there is coming a a renovation of the entire cosmos. A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That must not catch you by surprise. The reality is this. And the reality you need to come to, to grips with, come to terms with, is this, that either Jesus will return or you will die. But either way, you will face him as judge. Either way. It is appointed unto man to die once, and after this comes judgment. There are no second chances. Or if the Lord Jesus were to return today or return next year or ten years from now, and you are still living, understand there are no second chances. Either death or the return of the Lord Jesus ushers in the final judgment, the separation of the sheep and the goats, the separation of believers and unbelievers, the separation of those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have so many illustrations, tremendous illustrations of this in Scripture. One of the most most powerful is the story of Noah's Ark. And so Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Did you know he's a preacher, Noah? wasn't just a carpenter. He didn't simply build an ark. He actually preached. And he warned of what? Coming judgment, the flood. And man turned a deaf ear to that coming judgment. They knew it was coming. Noah proclaimed it. Noah was saved. Why? Because he and his wife and his children and their wives got into the ark. The ark points to whom? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. That if we are to be saved from the flood waters of God's judgment, if we are to escape God's coming wrath, we must be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said last week, we must be found standing where the judgment of God, the wrath of God has already burned, where it has already passed. It, bur- was bur- it burned up at Calvary's cross. And so it is when we repent of our sin we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become one with Christ, that the flood waters of God's judgment have passed. Why? Because the Lord Jesus has already borne that judgment in full.
Friend, if you're an unbeliever, you need to wake up. You must see the big picture. You must understand that things will come to an end. You must weigh the eternal against the temporal. Oh, you must come to terms with the fact that there are no second chances. You must face the fact right now to live as though the Lord Jesus Christ does not exist is to incur his judgment. To live as though he isn't coming back is to invite his judgment. The Lord Jesus has declared it. The day we don't know when, it could be tomorrow, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, either he will return or we will die. And that will be the first step into eternity. As Christ himself makes it clear, there will be a resurrection of the dead unto either everlasting life or everlasting contempt. The command of the Lord Jesus Christ to you is simply this. Wake up. See the big picture. See the big perspective. And understand precisely what he has accomplished at Calvary's cross where he bore God's wrath on behalf of sinners. But his principal lesson... His primary object isn't unbelievers in this morning. It is believers. He wants us, as Christians, as believers, to understand that we don't know when he's coming back. In the prophetic perspective, it looks real close. Two mountains from far off, real close together. And yet now we're born, what, 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus was here. How many more years will it be? We do not know. And so Christ's warning is what? We must stay awake. We must be ready. If you've ever sold a house, you know what I'm talking about. What it means to stay awake. What it means to be ready. What it means to not be caught unprepared. You sold a house. You've listed it. You've employed a real estate agent. What can happen? At any time of the day, you might get a phone call. And that agent's going to say what? Look, 45 minutes from now, there's a couple coming to look at the house. You better have that house ready. That house needs to be at all times what? In a state of readiness, preparation, ready for someone to come to inspect the view in hopes of purchasing the house. That is what the Lord Jesus is trying to convey. You don't know when I'm coming back, but you do know I'm coming back. Therefore, live in a constant state of readiness. Now, what does it mean to be ready? Here's a great question. What does it mean to be watching? What does it mean to not be caught? unprepared. Well, just briefly, let me just throw it out there, what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we become immersed and enamored with elaborate end times paradigms. It doesn't mean that. To be ready to be watchful doesn't mean I devise some elaborate scheme in which I actually tell you when Jesus is coming back. From the text, friend, anybody who dares announce to you Jesus is coming back on such and such a date, you know immediately from Christ's own warning, that is not a prophet. That is not even a preacher. That is a false prophet. Jesus has declared, we don't know. We have absolutely no idea. And friend, I beg you, and I, I say this graciously, but I will say it, I beg you, do not read the Bible through the latest newspaper headline. Don't do it. Every generation has thought they were the last generation, and every generation has been wrong. Every generation has identified the Antichrist, every gen- multiple Antichrists. Every generation has developed elaborate schemes of when Jesus is coming back. Every generation has stated adamantly, we're the last generation, we're in the last days, revealing that they don't really understand what the last days are. The last days is not a, a period of time immediately preceding the, the second coming of Christ. The last days is this entire period of time between his comings. We have no idea when he's coming back. The reality is this. He is coming back. We remain watchful, and we make absolutely certain we are ready what will it look like? I'm going to affirm five things. First is this. Readiness. If we are not to not be caught unprepared, if we are to be watchful, and if we are to be faithful, this readiness will show itself how? In five ways. Number one, readiness will give great hope for enduring affliction. This is what it looks like to be ready. Readiness 
gives great hope for enduring affliction. The diagram is still there. We are caught, if you like, in this period of time, the last days between the first coming and the second coming. We live in this overlap of two ages. Guess what? That means we still live under the curse. We still live with the consequences of the fall, which means what? We still experience great loss. We still experience great sorrow. We still experience tremendous affliction. We still die. We have not yet been saved from the reality of the curse that awaits Christ's second coming. We live under the curse, and we live with the full effects and consequences of the curse. But readiness is what? It is understanding that the end is coming. That there is a day when there will no longer be any affliction. There is a day when Christ will wipe away every tear. There is a day coming when death will be no more. To be ready is to understand that Christ is coming back. And this readiness gives great hope for enduring affliction. John Newton gave a powerful illustration a couple centuries ago. It's dated because he was writing in the 1800s. But listen carefully to what he said. Suppose a man is traveling to a city to take possession of a large inheritance. Have you got the scenario? There's a man traveling to a city to take possession of a large, invaluable inheritance. But his carriage, not a baby carriage, 1800s, a horse-drawn carriage, his carriage breaks down a mile short of the city. As a result, he must walk the rest of the way. You got it so far? John Newton adds, We would think that man a fool if he were to walk that one remaining mile all the while lamenting his broken carriage. Do you get what he is saying? Sadly, that's how many of us go through life. We lament our broken carriage. We so easily lose sight of where we are going and what awaits us, our inheritance. I will speak in the first person singular. I will speak personally. I am the biggest whiner. I am the biggest whiner. I act as though the problems of this life are eternal. I complain about life's struggles, and I fret over life's pressures, and so I so easily lose sight of this glorious promise, Christ is coming again. These last days, my life, merely the prelude to eternity, to be ready. That's readiness. Readiness gives great hope for enduring affliction. Number two. Readiness gives great urgency for avoiding deception, for avoiding deception. So here we are. Think again in terms of the diagram. We're caught in the overlap between these two ages. Do you know what that means? It means the devil is still active. He's bound. Christ reigns from on high. And Christ, through the ministry of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit, he builds his church And he calls his people unto himself, and the devil is hopeless and helpless to do anything about it. But even within the permissive, what we might call sovereignty of God, the devil is still active, and the devil still deceives, and we dare not underestimate Satan's influence and deception. He is a snake seeking to deceive God's people. He is a wolf seeking to destroy God's sheep. He is a lion. Seeking to devour God's children. In the last days, he continues to deceive. The the deceptions are many. And I don't have a lot of time to develop this, but let me just affirm and throw out there and leave it for your meditation what I believe to be one of the, the most subtle and yet deadly deceptions in our day. You know what it is? Life is about us. I think that is one of the greatest deceptions going in our day. Life is about me. It's all about me. The gospel is about me. The church is about me. It isn't, friend. It's all about God. History is the unfolding of God's eternal 
plan of redemption for one expressed purpose. Do you know what it is? The eternal glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are but players on this stage, which is human history, in which God has determined to put on display the splendor of his glory. And yet, you know what I do? In the, in the blink of an eye, I make it all about me. It's all about me. It's all about what satisfies me. It's all about what makes things meaningful for me. It's all about what fulfills me. No, it isn't, friend. It is all about God. Do not buy into the great deception. And do not buy into the therapeutic gospel, which promises to solve all your earthly problems now and make you happy, wealthy, and wise. Friend, understand, we are caught in the last days. We still live under the curse. We look forward with great hope. And we understand that the devil is still active and the devil is seeking to deceive us. And the devil, primarily, I believe in our days, he will seek to make us think that the meaning of life is all about us when in actual fact it is all about God. Readiness gives great urgency for avoiding deception. Number three. Readiness gives great strength for combating sin. And so we are living in what we call this eschatological, that's the study of last things, these last days. We are living with this eschatological tension between these two ages, this overlap, the present age and the age to come, the old creation and the new creation, the kingdom inaugurated and we're awaiting the kingdom consummated. You know, the state of the kingdom actually reflects your state and my state as individuals, as Christians. You see, just as the kingdom has been inaugurated at Christ's first coming, it awaits its consummation at his second coming. So too, our salvation as individuals, as members of the body of Christ, that salvation has only been inaugurated, friend. It's only been inaugurated. It has not yet been consummated. We are only partly saved. Do you understand that? We're only partly saved. We're only partly adopted. Yes, it has been inaugurated. We have been made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, right now, we enjoy every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They are ours because they are His. But we have not yet entered into the full fruition of those blessings. That awaits the consummation. That awaits His second return. That awaits the new heavens and the new earth. That awaits the consummation of all things in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we find ourselves now living with this tension of the two ages, this tension of the two kingdoms, this tension of, yes, being in Christ, and yet still struggling with sin. Oh, we need to grasp this. We need to grasp this so that we don't become delusional when it comes to our combat and the war we wage with sin. We need to remember what is coming. And yes, we need to celebrate the certainty that we will possess what is coming in practice, in reality, because it is already ours positionally in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are one with him. That hope and that expectation, that perspective gives us great impetus and motivation to deal with sin in our lives. Do you understand it? Do you see that? That as I understand who I am in Christ, That gives me all the motivation I need to deal with sin in my life. I've used this illustration before. I'm going to use it again, but I'm going to switch it up a little bit. I've spoken to you before of a young married couple, and I've portrayed the the, the young man as a slob and the young woman as pristine and perfect. Well, I'm going to mix it up this morning. The young woman's a slob. They get married. She's a slob. She really is. Doesn't take care of uh, the clothes, just leaves them all over the house. She won't wash any of the dishes. She doesn't cook. And Friday night, she still goes out with her friends and her sisters to do this, that, or the next thing. And it becomes a little irritating. And so it's Valentine's Day. Just past, the young man takes out his wife for dinner. And over dinner, he strikes up the courage to look into her eyes over the table. And he says to her, uh, dear, you need to remember you're married. Do you get it? He is not asking her to marry him. She is already married to him. He is asking her to remember she is married to him and to now act like it. 
Friend, understand this. This is pivotal for dealing with sin. Oh, grasp it. I pray by God's Spirit you grasp it. The gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, he does not call us. Listen very carefully to these words. He does not call us to become something we aren't. Did you catch it? He does not call us to become something we aren't. He calls us to be what we already are in him. That is all the motivation we need to deal with sin. We need to remember we're married. We're married. And Jesus doesn't ask us to become something we aren't. We're already one with him. We are wed by by a sovereign union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The command now is this. You need to remember you're married. And we need to act like it. And we need to see the big picture that what we are already in the Lord Jesus Christ that it will give way to glorification when all the residual effects of sin will be gone. But at present, we still live under the old creation. At present, we still wrestle with what we are in the flesh. But we celebrate what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our celebration of that fact and that demonstration of his tremendous love for us and his unspeakable patience with his bride gives us all the impetus and motivation we need to deal with sin in the present. Oh, number, that's number three. Readiness. Gives us great strength for combating sin. Number four is this. Readiness gives great resolve for overcoming worldliness. So the two ages, present age, the age to come, the last days. And guess what? You know it to be true. I know it to be true. This world is still very, very enticing. It is still very seductive, alluring. There are all sorts of things in this world which entrap us, distract us, and take our eyes, remove our eyes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we need to stay ready. We need to have this constant view of the big picture and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine this with your three-year-old. Try this this afternoon at home. Well, not if he's here or she's here because she's listening. It won't work. But a three-year-old, if they're not listening, at home this afternoon, you pull out a chocolate bar, right? Set it right there. Then write a check for $1,000. Fill in your little boy, your little girl's name. You put it right there. Okay, Johnny, over you come. Pick whichever you want. 100 out of 100, that little boy, that little gal, what are they going straight for? They don't even see the piece of paper. What are they going straight for? That chocolate bar. They don't even take the wrapper off. They just start shoving it down their throat. Friend, that is precisely what we are like. That's precisely what we are like. We get so enamored with the temporal, we lose sight of the eternal. Just as that child is unable or at least unwilling to differentiate between true value, a chocolate bar versus a check made out in the amount of $1,000. See, that child has no perspective of the big picture. That child has no perspective of of eternal things. That is far too often precisely what we are like in this sojourn in these last days. We become so easily enamored and distracted by the chocolate bars, the candy bars, all that is seductive and alluring around us. If we remain ready, readiness, it gives great resolve for overcoming worldliness. Do we live differently? Because we know he's coming back. Do the choices we make reflect our belief that Jesus is coming back? And number five, finally, quickly, readiness gives great zeal for serving Christ. So we get these five snapshots of what it means to be ready. Readiness gives great hope for enduring affliction, great urgency for avoiding deception, great strength for combating sin, Great resolve for overcoming worldliness and great zeal for serving Christ. These last days, Christ reigns. At his first advent, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, that is his exaltation to the right hand of the Father on high, these last days mark his present session at God's right hand, his present reign. That the Lord Jesus Christ reigns right now. He reigns over his kingdom of grace, which will give way to the kingdom of glory at his second coming. Make no mistake, friend. 
He reigns right now in the midst of these last days. He reigns right now in the midst of his enemies. He reigns over this spiritual kingdom, this kingdom of grace, and he reigns by his spirit through the word. And by the spirit through his word, he is advancing his kingdom. We don't advance the kingdom. We don't extend the kingdom. We become participants in the kingdom by his divine activity and sovereign rule. By his spirit through his word. And here we have this kingdom and we are participants in us. And he has called us to be faithful. And he has called us to be watchful. He has called us to serve him as he advances his kingdom. Friend, that has tremendous implications for the home. God has given you responsibilities in the home. He has given us roles and functions and callings to fulfill in the home. It has implications for the church. He has made us part of a local church. And in the context of that local church, we have a calling, responsibility, and roles to serve Him. It's true when it comes to the community, to love our neighbor and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And we serve with great zeal. Why? Because we have this absolute certainty that He reigns. We have this absolute confidence that he is building his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we have this wonderful expectation that the day will dawn when the kingdom of grace, which is invisible, will give way to the kingdom of glory, which is visible, when he returns and restores all things. Readiness gives great zeal for serving Christ. That's his message. In verses 32 through 37, he sums it up wonderfully in the 37th verse. We've read it already. Let me repeat it now as we conclude. This is his central command. And what I say to you, remember he is speaking to his disciples. What I say to you, I say to all, the command of the Lord Jesus Christ, stay awake. Our Father, that is our prayer this day, our heartfelt prayer. As we consider all the causes which causes us to fall Lead us to fall asleep. All of the distractions which lead us astray. We pray that by your grace and by your spirit we might indeed stay alert. We pray that we might indeed be prepared. We pray that we might indeed daily live in a state of readiness. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for how your spirit speaks through your word. We praise you for how your spirit edifies your people and call sinners to faith and repentance. And so it is our prayer this day that by your Spirit, as your word has gone forth, that you might truly perform a sovereign work in the minds and hearts of people gathered in this place. And we ask it for the glory of that name, which is above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.